SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Control over to the termination lock. The cranks are up to something. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is SequelCast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is Thrasher. I tell you, I lost my pitching arm. And Alex. I will tell you that this film didn't get two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. It got both thumbs up. That's right. I actually did watch the Siskel and Ebert clips on this and Critters too. But yeah, we're talking about Critters. Uh, start of a long-running franchise. We're going to be covering the first four films in the saga uh, over the next few weeks. Came out in 1986. Uh, it was a directorial debut of Stephen Herrick. Uh, from New Line Cinema with a screenplay by Stephen Herrick, Dominic Moore, and Don Keith Opper with a story by Dominic Moore. Um, starring D. Wallace Stone, M. Emmett Walsh, uh, Scott Grimes, who I, I didn't know was a kid actor uh, starting out. And um, yeah, you know, came out in 1986, so I would have been four years old when this came out, according to Box Office Mojo. Had a $3 million budget. And brought in uh, 13.2 million in the U.S. Damn. Oh, and we we got to say the because as far as I'm concerned, their stars of the film as well. The critter puppets done by the Chiodo brothers. Of course, yeah, the Chiodo brothers, who perhaps are best known either for critters, but I would say more so for the uh, what's the clown film? Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah, I've never seen Killer Clowns from Outer Space, believe it or not. The only feature film they ever directed, which opened the same weekend as Willow. (laughs) They've been trying to do a sequel, haven't they, for a while? They're doing something. Well, they were at one point, but as far as I knew, that was sort of languishing. It was probably a long time ago, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that they can't get a sequel to Killer Clowns from Outer Space made, and yet you have, you know, like 20 Tremors movies. Yeah. Maybe not 20, I think maybe more like 8 or 9, but... Um, years. Yeah, but Critters, I mean, I this came out in 86, and Gremlins came out in 84, but um, I, you know, according to research, the screenplay was written long before Gremlins, it just happened, but I think Gremlins being a success helped this script get made into a film. Yeah, that's a whole bittersweet type thing, because um, it's looked at as a Critters knockoff, but it was written before Critters, but... I mean, it was written before Gremlins, but because of Gremlins' success, that's what enabled Critters to be made. Well, it's so it's so wild because this this movie, like with with uh, Gremlins and then this, <clears throat> this is the beginning of the genre of tiny monsters fuck shit up. You've got the Gremlins from Gremlins, the Critters from Critters, the Ghoulies from Ghoulies, the Munchies from Munchies. Would you throw in Puppet Master in there? Uh. They're little, so really. They're a bit. More, they're a bit more gimmicky, and and it's and that's less like less played for laughs. I like guess there's more slapstick. I, I, there's like slapstick gore. Uh, I think would be part of the part of this genre. Right. I mean, the oldest thing I can 
I don't even know how old this thing is, really, but um, there was a trilogy of terror that had the one segment with the the killer uh, kind of African-looking doll. Oh, the, yeah, the killer doll chasing Karen Black, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Child's Play also had a bit of the the little a little thing, you know, attacking humans. But, I mean, this specifically is Aliens. I think, you know, E.T., um, there's an E.T. joke in uh, one of these movies. I, these kind of blend together sometimes. I watched them back-to-back, which perhaps was a mistake. Well, but, it, it is in this one, which I love yeah. that it, it truly exists in the 80s. Uh, the main kid has that, like, pleather E.T. puppet, which I don't know, or E.T. doll, which I don't know about you, but I had. Like, that was those were very common. Uh, he has a cat, and the cat's name is Chewie. It's clearly when they got the cat yes. as a kitten. It was, like, right when Return of the Jedi came out. <laughs> of course. And uh, I'm, when I'm looking at things here... Uh, the reason I pointed out Scott Grimes, he was, he's kind of what they call a multi-hyphenate. I mean, he had a, a few chart-topping singles in uh, the early 2000s, most notably the Sunset Boulevard, which I didn't really recognize when I heard it. But he has a, a pretty meaty supporting part as Lieutenant Malloy on the Orville. And he um, he's a redhead. He also had a, a part for several years on ER as kind of like a smart-ass doctor. Um. And anyone else familiar with this actor? But like to see him as a little kid and, and critters kind of tripped me out. Is isn't he also the voice of the alien on American Dad? He's not the voice of the alien. He's the voice of the son, Steve Smith. Oh, the voice of the alien is Seth MacFarlane, who always takes the best roles in his projects. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Doing a Paul Lind impression for the alien, really. Um, and uh, yeah, he was also in the Ridley Scott uh, Robin Hood. I, I never saw that because it was when Ridley Scott was doing a lot of so-so reviewed things with um, Russell yeah. Crowe. I, um, you know, it's not great, but I like it. It's, um, it's not bad. It's all, it's, it's fun if you like Robin Hood. I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll say that much. I'm, I'm not against Robin Hood, and I've actually thought about doing like Robin Hood or King Arthur on the show that for some point because there, there's so many of them. You can kind of pick and choose, do a grab bag mix and see how they adapt the. Uh, the legends. I mean, the big Robin Hood thing when I was a kid was the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Oh yeah, um, which has a few different cuts. But they, anyhow, um, mine was the Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> oh yes, really? Yeah. No, I saw that in the theater. Actually, I mean, that was the first Mel Brooks I saw in the theater. The second was Dracula Dead and Loving It, and I'm still waiting, Mr. Brooks, for another one. I mean, he's too old now. I don't think he would direct again, but maybe he oh, would. Oh. He's in his nineties, ninety-four or something like that. It's about as old as my grandma, but that has nothing to do with anything. Um, the character of Sally in here is played by Lynn Shea, who is the sister of uh, Bob Shea, head of New Line Cinema. Hmm. Bob Shea, who, um, anecdote on Richard Stanley cracks me up, because when they go to the meeting with um, with uh, New World Pictures, he goes, if I can get through this meeting, this kid doesn't do anything goofy, we'll be okay. And he's like, within two minutes, the assistant asks anyone if they want anything to drink. Water, tea, coffee. He asked for a black coffee with ten sugars, and he's like, "After that, I knew I was just this kid wasn't going to work." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, I appreciate for that anecdote, even though he's kind of a dick. He, my dad met him at a few um, parties when he was trying to sell some screenplay stuff that didn't get off the ground. But uh, yeah, what my dad said about Bob Shea is that if he likes you, he likes you, and if he doesn't, he doesn't, and you know right away. And also, he's a producer. He kind of has to be a dick. I mean, yes. You're yeah, and, and head of a studio, for Christ's sake. I mean, New Line Cinema 
did Lord of the Rings, which still blows my mind. I mean, this little like two bit operation that originally went from college campus to college campus doing uh, the showing like the marijuana films and, and these kind of goofball things rose to, to prominence with the Ninja Turtles and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like Critters, too. I mean, a lot of direct to video stuff, too. I mean, they were very ambitious and then that they took on lord of the rings kind of blows my mind when like just the year before the dungeons and dragons movie came out yeah and also like speaking of vhs and stuff i mean how many times as a kid did you pick up this tape and the critters 2 tape and look at it and go like whoa like this and ghoulies and like american gothic were like the three most handled vhs tapes that i didn't watch until my adult life you know yeah i admit like the critters box scared me especially the one for critters too with the big ball of critters it was just with the teeth i think because it's just nightmarish um thrasher what about do you have any thoughts on that yeah giant the giant version of the critters 2 poster definitely was was something that that creeped me out and i know that creeped out a lot of my contemporaries but critters all throughout i think all the way like through through grade school really critters was this was the horror franchise to see. Uh, there, this was because I think I think is that, that kids really glommed onto this, and like as I got older, the interest in critters kind of like waned. But like peak critters excitement is probably around the ages of six, seven, or eight. And in fact, I saw this uh, when I was six. Uh, a friend of mine was staying over for the weekend. And he was obsessed with this movie. And then he's like, wait. And then like, he sees like a TV listing. Wait, Critters is going to be on tonight. Dude, we've got to watch Critters. Uh, and that was the first time I saw it. So your friend had a voice like Christopher Lloyd. Marty, we've got to watch Critters. Oh, well, a, li- a little more high pitched. He, he's one of those, like he, he, he was one of those kids who would turn everything into a sound effect. And like that the, sound effect would often involve douche. And the guy is like, ooh, and then he falls down the stairs like, oh, dr, dr, dr. Mm-hmm. and then he's like, skaboosh, and he falls everywhere. <laughs> yeah, like, he, he was so, he was that yeah. kid. I, I see. It's funny, if you look at the, so the VHS or the, I guess now Blu-ray DVD cover, it's got the critter, but the poster for it kind of looks like this, like, cocoon, like, visitors from outer space. It's like the illuminated farmhouse with, like, a couple meters yeah. over it. Like, it could totally mislead people. It's kind of funny. Well, there's one uh, po- early poster I found that looks almost looks like, like a book cover, where it's the family standing in the middle of a wrecked farmhouse with the alien bounty hunters behind them, and you can see the critters peeking up at them through the slats in the steps beneath them. That's And cool. I really like that one. That's cool. And also, you know, uh, first impression is, <clears throat> it's funny because you always, you know, the reputation of, like, Corman and New World is that, like, Oh, they just churned out these like cheapo depot B movies, and then this gets going, and you're like, "Damn, this looks pretty good." I mean, you've got spaceships, you've mm-hmm. got aliens, you've got creatures, you've got you know interstellar flight. I'm like, this is a pretty handsome production for like what you'd call a B movie. Not just um, that; it takes its time introducing the critters. Yeah, it it, it didn't I, I it didn't feel cheap at all to me, and. And then going back, I went through a hard like um, uh, like a Star Wars knockoff phase in the in the um, in the late winter, and uh, so I was I was pumped on Star Crash and like Forbidden World and stuff like that. So this uh, watching Critters was a perfect natural extension of that. And uh, again, the same thing with those movies. I didn't really feel like yeah, it's obviously not a freaking Ridley Scott movie, but um, you know it 
it, it feels good. It feels like they're really doing something fun. Well, you know, this this film does successfully invoke, you know, that terror you get when a really small but really aggressive dog or let's say in my case, a muskrat chases after you and you don't know what it's going to do. This mm. movie captures that because small things can be terrifying. Not oh, just cool. that, but but this film, especially compared to the movie we're talking about next week with Critters 2, it it's mainly in the dark. You know, and and you can't see the critters as well, and I think that makes them in in some ways more scary than silly, and 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 their teeth. I mean, everyone, you know, you might not know what it's like to be shot by a laser beam, but you know what it feels like to be bit, or or if you don't have animals to get to cut yourself on something, like that's not a pleasant feeling. And it, it's, um, I mean, yeah, there's really something with the Shoto Brothers design. It's not overly designed like a Transformer in one of the newer movies or something. It's a short, squat little thing with these, like, it, I, I like the wrinkles. I think that adds a lot of texture to the face. You have the fur, but I mean, it's those big, uh, the way the, the mouth super opens up to the big rows of teeth, man. I think that's the, the big uh, thing with the design of the character that, that people remember and the glowing red eyes. Well, speaking of which, another thing in this movie's favor is that it's 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 all, of course, it's all practical effects, but it's loaded with, well, wait, how the hell did they do that special effects? Like, like one of the features of the critters, they can roll up into a ball and move around really fast. They can do the Sonic spin-up from uh, from <laughs> Sonic Hedgehog 2. And, and it, you know, some of the, t- like about half the time, well, clearly they just kind of like threw a fuzzy ball with some spin on it. But then other times we see the balls like roll and change direction. Yeah, they had a gyroscopic remote control ball. Like a... Mm. This is like a BD-9 before BD-9 kind of thing going on. <laughs> yeah, pretty awesome design. And um, yeah, the creature design, I think, is incredibly effective. Like you said, Matt, the rows of teeth make it extra creepy, like almost like a shark. But also it's like they have a personality, but they're not like cute. Like almost, like the gremlins are almost cute. You know what I mean? Um, well, the gremlins got- just want to party, but the, the critters just want to fucking eat. They want to eat. Yeah, exactly. They are here to eat. They are going to eat, and they will eat you. So should we uh, break down the story? I think so. I mean, this is amazing. We've been spending almost 20 minutes talking <laughs> just about, like, the character design and, and the poster and then the, the VHS box art. But, I mean, I have to say, it's really quite something. I brought up uh, to my wife, I was like, hey, we're watching Critters on the show. Would you want to watch it? And she, and she had a pretty violent reaction. She was like, no, 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 no. And I guess like Critters and uh, in particular uh, also Predator, it just really scares the shit out of her for some reason. Ah, um, She's not like unfriendly visitors. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the way this film begins, it's a classic kind of Roger Corman thing where it starts in space. You uh, the camera zooms in slowly to this beautiful model of an asteroid prison and you hear voiceover. So you get to imagine in your head what's happening. But, you know, these crites are, are uh, pretty bad dudes and uh, they're often a lot of people. And then you see a ship escape and like that. So much is left to your imagination, I think, makes the sequence pretty powerful. So I got to I there's so two two things one uh, so so the name of the species is crites uh, and but of course on earth they're just called critters because that's what the you know the good down home farm people think they are <laughs> something that occurred to me on this watch if you take the word critters and remove the second instance of all repeated letters you get crites 
Exactly. So like, oh. it's it's not like a word. I think they spell it with a K in all the promotional material. But like, that was just kind of like interesting how they like clearly that's how they came up with the name. But the other thing, so the the Kryats are being sent to the the prison colony, and there's this whole thing about how they're supposed to be eight prisoners. Yeah, but we had to kill one of them to make sure the food rations lasted the trip. They won't stop eating, and because like so. And, and and the Kryten, they're clearly sapient beings. They can pilot a ship, they can have a language, they can plan and strategize. Which makes me think, what if the Kryten in this movie, like, what if what they're being arrested for is tax fraud? Yeah, exactly. Like, what if their crime has nothing to do with eating other sofons? No, that's that's a good point. And there's, um, I found a, a sort of vintage making of featurette on YouTube. I wish I had that um, Blu-ray set from Shout Factory, because that looks pretty cool. But... They they had a thing where um, Bob Shea, apparently during the making of the movie, he said, and I think in the script it had like maybe subtitles for stuff that Kreitz say, but Bob has, Shea is like... There's a handful it, of subtitles for that. Yeah, not, 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 not very much, but in, in the movie you see him and stuff, and Bob Shea was insistent, no subtitles, we, we shouldn't know what they're saying. And then on in one of the first preview screenings, the editor slipped in just one of the subtitles where... Uh, one of the characters gets a shotgun and there's two Krites talking to each other. And one of them's like, they have weapons. And the other one's like, so what? And then the shotgun like blows one of them in half. And the <laughs> Krites like, Oh fuck. And, uh, and that got a laugh from Bob Shea. And because of that, they could add the subtitles in after the facts. I mean, I think you could do it either way with or without subtitles, but I like that it's sparingly used. And when it's used, it's often for humor. Oh, yeah. the other thing is this whole big space opening we get, uh, which a lot of people, which like, my wife had actually forgotten about uh, is that there's more outer space stuff in this movie than in the fourth movie, which is set in outer space. Ah. When you get the bounty hunters, which are, which is an interesting wrinkle in all these films. Why don't you talk about that? Uh, Alex, I thought it was a really cool design. I mean, there's that, this, the, it's the easiest thing in the world to do, but it's so effective. And it's that blank face. It's that blank tabula rasa thing. And then what do you do with that? It's like, you know, you when it's like the same thing with Michael Myers. That's like, what do you do with that blank face? You, you project your fears on it, and it's creepier than if there was like a monster face. And then what do they do in the movie? They literally project whatever they want on it. So there's like this like rock video transmission they pick up on. And I guess one of the bounty hunters just thinks it's cool and just, just like, I'll be him. And I thought that was hilarious. And uh, yeah, he 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 gets the face of Johnny Steele, who's a very like Tim cool. Curry David Bowie hybrid. And, perfect description. And the other thing I love is there's a handful of moments in the movie where someone's like, "Wait, is that Johnny Steele?" Yeah, yeah, and 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 you hear it in in the radio when people are driving around. I mean, it reminds me of um, this might be a bit highfalutin, but they're in the very first James Bond film, Doctor No. There's a, a number uh, underneath the mango tree, my honey and me, and da, 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 soon, you know. And and that bit you hear performed live twice in the movie, you hear in the radio like two or three times, and it makes it really gives it a lived in feeling like, oh, in this world where this movie takes place, this song's a hit. But on the other hand, as you get older and you watch and you see these things, you're like, oh, they're just trying to do like a hit single, like they tried to <laughs> force into the Archies every episode. It's actually funny. Originally, they wanted Billy Idol. Yeah. Which has was... been cool, but I like I like this. I like the contained thing. It doesn't so, take you out of the movie as much. With uh, it would totally take me out of the movie. Yeah. If it was really idle. I mean, it'd be cool. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. So you know what? You know what else is cool? 
So uh, Terrence Mann, who plays Ugg, the bounty hunter slash Johnny Steele, do you know I've seen him perform live? No shit. Cats. Yeah, he he played for a few years. He played the Beast in the Big Beauty and the Beast musical on Broadway. That's the production I saw. That's funny, yeah, because um, I guess the, uh, he was like, he said, he's like, I let the wig and the costume do a lot of the action for me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just pretty funny. But um, no, he's a pretty tall guy, kind of an unusual face. And then I, the reason I said Cats earlier is he did Rum Tum Tugger on Cats on Broadway. It was a, one of his big roles he was known for. And someone on Twitter made a Rum Tum Tugger joke when I posted about Critters. And I didn't understand it until just now when I looked up the actor. So, so but related related to all, all of this, so when, when we see... Because one of the things this movie does really well is they'll show you an impressive special effect, but then when that thing happens again, they can't show you the same special effect because they because you know they got to save some money here and there, so they just kind of like remind you of it. So when when he transforms, we see the whole transformation, and it's that amazing reverse shot where like the face melts and then reforms. It's very it's very Hellraiser. Yeah, um, good. When I saw this when I was six, that scared the hell out of me, and I had to leave the room. Yeah, and that was another instance where I'm like, damn, man, this movie's got some chops. Like, I, I was impressed by those effects. That was really cool. And it re- you know what it reminded me of, which is like, is, it reminded me of uh, Dead and Buried. Ooh. You guys hmm. ever It's been a while. I, I. It's a really creepy, fucked up horror film. Um, I won't get into it because it'll be a whole fucking thing. Um, sure. Yeah, cool, good effects. Goopy, Hellraiser, yeah, like you said. Like Lovecraftian cosmic horror, man. That is just, yeah. You know, oh, and, and the, the goopy skeleton look reminded me a little bit of Frank Langella as Skeletor in the He-Man movie. Um, <laughs> so a little, a little bit of that. But I mean, as, as we get to, you know, most of the movie, it takes place on this farm on the outskirts of this town. And uh, because it's with not that many characters and the acting, I would say is fairly naturalistic, especially by today's standards. But, like, these feel like real kids kind of yelling at each other, and they're kind of, you know, all the neighbors know each other, but it's not... Because it's on the farm, it's not quite as cheesy as, like, the suburbs or something like that. Right. Well, you know, it's it's a very real family, but it's also a very real small town, which I, I think really grounds it. And, like, the only thing that doesn't work is they make a lot of hay about how the father's going to a bowling tournament. But if you piece <laughs> the timeline together... What is the bowling tournament starting at ten forty-five at night? Yeah, or maybe they just have really early bedtimes or something. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, bowling. Well, that's that's true bowling. in some places, but I mean, in I, I do like at the bowling alley, you get the the jacket with the kind of like a Ghostbusters joke uh-huh. on, the on the jacket. Busters, yeah, yeah, with the pins. Yeah, there was um also I think uh, the Scott Grimes kid. I totally identified with him because that was totally me. I was always blowing shit up and, you know, <laughs> flinging rocks around and blowing up toys and making makeshift fireworks and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, a bit of a bit of a pyro. And then his his sister, April, uh, played by Nadine Vanderveld, is uh, is OK. But uh, her who's better known as who uh, is her boyfriend in a brief scene, Billy Zane. Yeah. As Steve Elliott, you know, he's it's basically the same kind of part that Johnny Depp played in the first Nightmare in Elm Street that, you know, he's going to be a mark. He's too good looking for this kind of a movie. <laughs> but Billy Zane, I mean, that that man has 
you know, either had really good plastic surgery or just keeps himself in shape and eats well. And but I mean, he he just seems to not age ever. Yeah, he's got Rob Lowe syndrome. I mean, yes, yeah. <laughs> like even Rob Lowe and Catherine Deneuve all hang out together and drink her ambrosia at a cafe and talk about everyone else's ages. But yeah, no, obviously it's Billy Zane. He's you know freaking young and hot and he looks great and. um and yeah, I think this is his first actual like speaking role. Um, he been there in stuff. There you go. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but young Billy Zane, like if you watch like Dead Calm or um, Orlando and stuff, like man, he is just good right out the jump. Like he, uh, yeah, Billy Zane just kind of came onto the scene, and here I am. He just, and he just knows what he's doing. What I admire about Billy Zane, I guess. I think I'd call him a character actor, I guess, although he's better looking than I tend to think character actors are. I have a kind of a crush on him, I'll say that. But Billy's, a, you know, even in Titanic, like, he doesn't have that much lines of dialogue, but he makes the most of his scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, he tends to be a bit of a steam stealer, stealer and, uh, I don't know, he, he's just uh, always a delight to watch. It's a shame the Phantom in the 90s didn't do better, because I would have liked to see a follow-up to that. Yeah, I remember that was um they, they that was getting sold like it was going to be the next big thing and oh brother it was not. Nope, but the cartoon what you you can you know this Thrasher what is it like Phantom like twenty forty seven or something? Yeah, there there was a it, it ran in first run syndication for several years it was a a cyberpunk future version of the Phantom the Ghost Who Walks. Interesting. And it was, uh, they had a Super Nintendo game with really good animation, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, back back to Critters, like, as we mentioned uh, earlier on in the show, excuse me, uh, it's a it's a slow buildup to uh, when the aliens show up, but but when they do, I mean, they, they show up effectively, and uh, what do you think about, like, kind of like the nighttime photography for, like, a lot of this? Do you think it looked kind of murky, or? I thought well, it looked good. It reads it reads as appropriately dark because like that's one that's one problem with a lot of horror movies where a scene's supposed to be taking place in the dark but they do want you to see all the action everything it's like everything always ends up looking overlit not mm. in this movie because they, they, I think they're they're using blue gels or something they're using something that yeah that, that allows you to light things but drains out the color so you never think, oh, this is a lit scene. You always think, oh, yeah, he's walking around and that's just the glow from a streetlight. Um, so I, I really enjoy it. It's just so nice to see, like, just a shadow and you can see the motion of the critter puppet in it. It helps, it helps give it so much more personality. Well, it feels more real. It feels more chaotic. Uh, Alex, what did you think about it? I thought it looked nice and I was surprised, too, because you'd think that, you know, obviously a lot of this was shot actually like a night-night. And um, you don't really, it doesn't feel very compromising that, you know, you have to usually shoot with faster film at night, which usually you get more grain. But maybe it's just a really nice transfer on this uh, Fancy Pants Scream Factory Blu-ray set. Um, I think so, because we were, we were watching, uh, Thrasher and I were watching the DVD version, which is, you know, a good bit murky and kind of noisy with the transfer. Yeah, this one this one looks pretty good, pretty crisp. Um yeah, I was surprised. Like I said, uh, you know, you, you think it's going to be a little cheap, a little uh, rough around the edges. And then you, you see the work, and the work is pretty dad damn great. And um, also, you've got M. Emmett Walsh, the sweatiest uh, lawman in um, yes. 
he looks like he stepped right out of a Coen Brothers movie. Like the weekend before, he was a corrupt cop, like blowing people up with dynamite. <laughs> oh, he was literally. They saw Blood Simple, and they're like, "We're we want him," and they're like, "Holy shit, we actually got M. M. Walsh." And then later, he'd do other stuff with them, like Raising Arizona with the Coen Brothers. But yeah, no, I think he is is the true definition in my mind of a character actor. He is kind of a weird face, but he looks grumpy. He looks lived in. He feels real, and yet he was also in things like uh, Blade Runner and Ordinary People. Um, but, I mean, you, you look at his filmography, it has Catch Me If You Can, you know, some mainstream stuff, but then he's also in Free Willy 2, The Adventure's Home. <laughs> and he's, he's the apothecary at the end of uh, uh, Baz Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. So, I mean, man he's done... Uh, yeah, man likes to work. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I mean, I always, when I, whenever I hear the phrase, man likes to work, I always think of Samuel L. Jackson, because yep. uh-huh. he's a what they call like a working actor or to use a really old phrase which i like old phrases a ham and egger right <laughs> he just kind of shows up does the work moves on to the next thing and always just does a solid job and yet he has some humor to the role but he also feels feels kind of flustered you get the feeling man this dude's like the sheriff in this like kind of farm country area he shouldn't have to be working this hard is yeah. he in your retirement? Like, why does he have to deal with these aliens? You feel kind of bad for him. <laughs> like, cause he always plays the character who seems a little scummy, but you realize that like you you always feel like like he's a little scummy, but you know this guy gets shit done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah, maybe it's just like the way he talks or presents himself. Like, no, but you know, you get like whether it's Blade Runner or whatever. You know, you, you get the feeling that like you know, push comes to shove, he'll he'll, he'll get the job done. And. So- um, did you guys pick up on a little, a little dynamic between him and his receptionist that would kind of carry over into Twin Peaks with um, Sheriff Grant? Remember when he's like, what's going on? And she's like, well, you know, Terry left Joan and she's talking about the soap opera. And he's like, no, like in the case. Oh, yeah. They had this great like <laughs> back and forth screwball comedy rat a tat tat dialogue. Yep. Yep. And it was like word for word almost in the first few episodes of the first uh, season of Twin Peaks. And, and she's wearing she's always wearing like the vintage Vintage 50s fashion. Oh, yeah. Got a lot. Yes, it's, uh, no, I mean, it's a nice touch. You know, is it really required for the plot? Not really, but the, these are character moments you would still have in films. Well, uh, this by time having in that, though, we 80s. now care more about the characters when the critics yes. are trying to eat them. Well, I, I think that's, that's the key to a good, um, horror film, or you could call this horror, science fiction, what have you, but it's, you have to care about who gets killed. To really make it something memorable, because well, otherwise, that's why, that's why just... I love that this movie takes its time because that mm-hmm. it, we do we do come to love these characters by the time they're ready to be massacred. Exactly, and uh, also, I mean, the the kids are, are fairly young; like you don't know if they're going to die or not. Like they don't really seem especially competent, except for maybe the firework skills. And yet, even the fireworks stuff, the explosions, like stuff like that, that's set up early on, you know, pays off later in the movie. And plus, you have the bounty hunters in there as kind of the more science fiction element that uh, when they show up, they they get stuff done, but they cause a lot of collateral damage with the delightful explosions. Yeah. Oh, and uh, speaking of speaking of delightful, we got to talk about Ethan Phillips. That's right, TV's Neelix from Star Trek Voyager. Huh. Who is the deputy sheriff Jeff Barnes? Who gets offed by the who gets eaten by the critters really early, but then the second bounty hunter who hasn't changed shape yet models himself on on uh, his on on Ethan Phillips' character, but he only has the corpse to work off of. So 
<laughs> if you've ever wanted to see a Neelix zombie murdering people, this is the movie to see. I also, I liked um, Don Keith Opper as uh, Charlie. Because at first you kind of, do you ever feel like he kind of has like this like Renfield vibe? Where he's kind of like the, this kind of like madman at first. Like, oh, the aliens are coming. And he's like, you know, locked in the pokey for for being dr- like the town drunk and stuff. And that, um, well, he's yeah. playing the Clint Howard role and he's got the Clint Howard look, but he's not Clint Howard. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. And he has a whole interesting background where he, like he was the local boy who was going to be the guy who left town to become a sports hero. Cause apparently he was a really good baseball pitcher and was being scouted, but something went wrong. He lost his nerve. And now he's just this local handyman alcoholic that people just barely tolerate. Who never the nevertheless uh, uh, Jay or who nevertheless uh, Brad uh, like hangs out with uh, all the time. And one <laughs> thing I love is that in a lesser movie he'd have this moment of transformation where he would dramatically empty his bottle of scotch right. and like right. so and instantly sober up and his alcoholism would be cured. This movie doesn't have that. No, it does not. <laughs> no, and in the in the later movies like they sort of make reference to it and and he just is you know people don't get cured that easily in real life and it's another bit, tiny bit of realism i guess to the character he is the town drunk but he gets to uh have a bit of a character arc in this which i admit surprised me he's kind yeah, of but like, he still has an arc it's just that he's still the town drunk by the end of the movie no car- no i mean but i like that detail though i think it's it, just like alex said you know it's not the cartoony oh he's the the knight in shining armor at the end he still has a uh, uh, problems to deal with. He's analogous to like the in terms of character and franchise, analogous to like the ice cream guy from the Phantasm films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like the secondary third character in the first movie, and then, as you will see later on, takes on much more significance in the subsequent films, which I always think is kind of funny when that happens. Oh, and something else because, like, you know what? When the family starts getting besieged in the farmhouse. Uh, there's all sorts of great mayhem. There's some slapstick comedy. There's a critter in the, in the toilet. Um, but one of the things is that one of the critters starts growing. And this this speaks to the quality of the way this film is directed. In my memory, the giant critter is all over this film. It's only in like three really brief shots. But they, yeah. use, they cut around the oversized critter so well, you feel its presence uh, much more than it's actually seen. Yeah, that was a good move because, I mean, you, we have plenty of critters on screen throughout. So, like, it's, you know, so you want to save the big cool critter. but You want that sparingly, you know. You, you want to get the full effect of that. So I thought that was a good touch. Well, I like to think that that's the critter queen. Exactly. <laughs> and also a bit of trivia. Um, for some of the puppets, they wanted them to look, you know, animal realistic and stuff. So they used uh, moose fur. Huh. Oh, um, but in ter- which it, it looks great on camera, but I guess as uh, in terms of puppeteering, it really sucks because it's really stiff and not very comfortable. So that was a bit of a source of contention there on on the old set. Well, I bet it would um, have a certain stench to it as well over time with all the <laughs> time you're having it blow up and stuff. And yeah, it, right. The, the fur does, you know, it doesn't quite wouldn't quite work the same as like I don't know, like kitty cat fur or whatever else they'd use. 
So the the climax of the film is that you know the critter the critters have eaten their fill, but they they use their pot their 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 projectile needles to stun uh, Brad's older sister. They throw her in the ship. The idea being, oh well, this is going to be our snack as we make the next leg of our journey. Uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, Brad is able to get in there and and get her out. Uh, and he he was his plan because you know we know he likes to play with cherry bombs and explosives. He had gotten a hold of like these like big like M80s or something, some or dynamite or something, some some explosive commercially available. And he like the plan was to blow up, use it to blow up the ship. But he's not able to do that. He drops it in the ship, and the ship takes off. And this is where Charlie gets his moment, where Charlie turns his booze into a Molotov cocktail. It's not him overcoming his alcoholism. It's just him being desperate. And he ta- <laughs> and he pitches the Molotov cocktail into the ship, and we just get a nice, satisfying explosion as that ship gets blown to hell. And from this point on, the movie becomes E.T. Yes. <laughs> It's like there's a heartfelt goodbye, you know, with with the bounty hunters. Uh, you know, you know, Charlie makes makes a, a cra- Charlie makes a crack about like, well, you know, can I go with you or something like that? Which we'll find out. We'll pay off later. Need some adventure in your life? What Mad Universe is a podcast about the history of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, where we delve the depths of pop culture history. Everything's the same politically, but we have ray guns. The the actual motive isn't to explore something that's, quote, yeah. scientifically possible. Or... But neither is Star Wars, and I know there's Shh. arguments about that, but I would definitely consider Star Wars science fiction. You haven't it's... read Dune! You have, no, I haven't. You can never be the Kwisatz Haderach. What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. With a purposeful grimace and a terrible smile, join Nikki and Wyatt as we stomp our way through the history of Toho's Dai Kaiju films in Discuss All Monsters. Are you telling me we're going to discuss all monsters? We won't stop until there isn't a monster left to discuss. Smash that play button like Godzilla and King Kong smash an 18th century Japanese pagoda. Only on the Greenlit Podcast Network. But, you know, the bounty hunters just, just leave, but the family's farmhouse has been wrecked. And this is when we get one of the absolute best how-did-they-do-that special effects shot. The <laughs> aliens, who I guess had this technology the whole time, they hit the wreckage of the farmhouse with the, with this beam, and the farmhouse reassembles itself. And it's just it's just great reverse footage of a controlled demolition of a house that really yes. makes it look like it's like exploding backwards into its shape. It's really amazing. One of my favorite shots is when we see, like, a window form itself, but then shingles come flying out of the window and reset on the roof. And then like the, the window in the window pane reassembles. It's really good. I could just oh. picture Roger Corman going like poltergeist had an imploding house. Well, we are the only horror film from the eighties that have a rebuilding house. Yeah. And, and, and the music here by David Newman, it's, it's very, um, like early '80s, uh, kind of John Carpenter inspired, I would I would argue, uh, electronica, and it really works nice in this rebuilding of the house sequence towards the end. It 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 feels kind of like uplifting in a way. I I, I don't know, and I, I was what? more moved by that special effect shot than I thought I would be. It's wondrous. It's whimsical. Like the family yes. kind of gets its hope back. The family's gotten a little a little miracle because uh, who knows? They probably would have been ruined otherwise. Their house hadn't been rebuilt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And and the kid and the kid is left with like a communicator, you know, you know, if you need to call us or whatever. So like again, it's like this. It's just it's just a perfect Elliot. I'm I'll be in here kind of ending. 
And yet the final shot I could have lived without. I mean, you get the same thing in the 1999 Godzilla movie. But, uh, oh, there's eggs. There's critter eggs still in the barn. Yeah, with the chamber, the, the chicken coop where the giant critter first started growing, there's four critter eggs in there. It, which is funny because in all actuality, if, you know, the, if the camera wasn't rolling, you know, someone would be like, what the fuck are these eggs doing here? And, you know, throw them on the <laughs> Steph, that's what I would do. I mean, you know. I mean, yeah, they definitely don't look like regular eggs. Although at the same at the same time, you know, I'm sure when the aliens rebuilt the house, they didn't restock the fridge. So I could totally see oh, yeah. after that, the family's just, well, fuck it. Let's eat the eggs. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, these taste a bit gamey, don't you think? Oh, I don't know. They taste fine to me. Just put more cheese on it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it, it's really something. Um, but, you know, overall, Critters, I would say... Sequel, yes, this is a charming film. Um, I, I like that the bounty hunters in there for me really kick this up a notch. It brings an element that's sort of uh unexpected, and they even set stuff up in here that we'll see next week in the sequel with critters too that like get payoffs. It's nice that you have a lot of the same cast in the sequel, I think that helps them feel like a two of a kind in particular. And uh, again, you know, good critters effects, good design. I, I, I would argue this is um scarier than uh, say the second film but it's uh yeah it's better than you think it might be given the sort of uh cheesiness of the poster it's a sequel yes for me as well this is just this is the like the best kind of b movie it's got a simple premise and it runs with it uh, just the mix of the sci-fi elements and the horror elements the this is just this is just such a satisfying movie i love that it holds up yeah, definite sequel, yes. And also, I have to say, um, props to Billy Greenbush for the great, uh, like, critter pain acting. Because, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm an actor, but I've acted in the past. You know, I've gotten stabbed, poison shot, head crusher of the rock. Um, but, like, grabbing a puppet and going like, ah, you know, and actually selling it, that's not easy. And he does that quite well here. Um, so, yeah, definite sequel, yes. It's got that right level of, like, whimsical sci-fi and kind of just like classic 50s sci-fi horror stuff going on and it's um it's got this like flavor of uh flavor of distinction like we kind of i'm sure audiences knew in 1986 that there would be a critters two and possibly a three or four and a five um so a lot of fun and uh you know appropriately creepy too very good so let's do a pitch a sequel Mm-hmm. Woohoo, yes. So my idea is you have the end shot of them having the eggs. I would uh, do what I tend to lean on a lot in this uh, segment, a, a prequel where you would open with that shot at the end of Critters 2. You'd, you'd, you'd probably do what you would do in the 80s where you do kind of a five-minute montage of the first movie. Uh, a, a to kill time, but B because you know not everyone had videotapes back then and could <laughs> remember what happened. And uh, you you would go and see these these eggs at the end of the first one, and then you would crossfade to Critter's eggs, and and you would see a a, a Chiron at the bottom of the screen, ten thousand BC. That's right. <laughs> the Critters originally came to Earth during the time of the dinosaurs. Whoa. And and it would be critters versus dinosaurs, and I think you would, to keep it from being like too expensive with the special effects, you'd have to have 
cavemen in there for some reason. And maybe M. Emmett Walsh would be the head of like the caveman tribe or something. You would maybe do something jokey with the <laughs> casting. And uh, it would show, uh, I think the poster would be something like uh, a Tyrannosaurus Rex head, but it it's a... Uh, you know, the flesh is mostly eaten away and you see a little critter's head popping up out where the eyeball would be. <laughs> and it would be called uh, 10,000 B.C. Before Critters. <laughs> yes, please. So the, the overly expensive prequel <laughs> is uh, my pitch. Uh, Thrasher, what say you? Uh, I want to do Critters Leftovers. So... The pre- the premise behind the premise behind my sequel is that it's going to be a whole a whole new cast. Uh, so we're going to find out what happened is uh, that the family, the Browns, they found the eggs and they're like, oh fuck this! They turned the eggs over to the government. So the eggs are sent to the secret facility where the government hides all its alien stuff. And we will find out. It'll be a shocking amount of alien stuff. Um, and the. Uh, and the short of it is, in this facility, the eggs hatch. And, of course, the scientists are fascinated about these critters and they want to experiment on them. But eventually the critters bust loose uh, and start, you know, eating people in the facility. The facility is under quarantine, so they can't get out. There will be one big connection to the other movies, though. Uh, so because so many people in Grover's Bend, the town where the first critters take place, said that Johnny Steele showed up with a laser gun and was blowing up little aliens... Well, the people of this facility got in their heads, oh, Johnny Steele must be an alien operative. So Johnny, the real Johnny Steele is locked up in this facility, but he is just a pompous rock star. Uh, and eventually, like, he will be released. Like, well, you defeated the critters before. I don't know what hell you're talking about. <laughs> but, they, but they release him and give him, like, some salvaged alien guns taken off of a crashed UFO. And he sort of has to, in a bumbling way, in a very Inspector Clouseau way, he fights off the critters. Uh, And the big climax of this one will be there's a giant alien monster in the facility, which the critters will free and will, like, ride. They'll they'll all be, like, you know, like little little tiny cowboys. One of them might even have a little hat. And so the the big final showdown will be him, uh, will be the real Johnny Steele fighting the critters, riding this this giant alien monster. So that's that's my pitch for Critters Leftovers. Very like good. It. And Alex. So um, I'm going to go off the thing you said, Matt, about the uh, aliens rebuilding the house and everything, but they didn't restock the fridge, those fucking jerks. Um, <laughs> so the family is famished. They're hungry, right? And yeah, they crack some eggs and they crack some critter eggs in their saute pan. It's not really thinking <laughs> anything, you know? They, they mess up the electricity, too. They can't see anything because the bulbs aren't working. But the gas is still on. Um, yeah, so they fry up some eggs and they eat them. Lo and behold, they yeah, they ate some critter embryos. And um, it, it turns out that the human saliva accelerates the uh, gestation process. So the critter DNA, human DNA, gets spliced. And their heads just kind of blur, morph into critter heads. But they keep their human <laughs> bodies. So they can walk around on hind legs with critter heads, but they try to kind of go undercover. So they take the uh, leftover skin of the human heads and try and stretch them over the critter heads and like put on hats and glasses and stuff and kind of <laughs> go about as like normal. 
So, you know, people would be like, like, hey, how's it going? Like, and um, the town people would just kind of accept it because, you know, they're not too bright anyway. And um, it's called uh, Critters Undercover. Weekend oh, at Critters. Weekend, weekend at Critters. Do, do you have an idea of an image for the poster? Oh, yeah. It would just be this terrifying looking um, Brad with like a slingshot. And like, you know, you can see like the, the critter hair protruding out of like the ears and the eye sockets and stuff. And he's uh, holding a slingshot like Bart Simpson style at the camera. Very good. I guess my my uh, poster would be cr- a bunch of critters peeping out of a uh, out of out of a gr- a uh, refrigerator. <laughs> well, they they do like burgers, as we'll talk about next week. Ah, oh, yes, burgers and salad bars and all the toppings you can ask for. Okay, so um, we'll go in from there onto what you're watching. I hinted earlier. I saw a movie in the theater. This is the first movie I had seen in about a year and a half, which I can't I think of a. a another time in my life where I hadn't seen a movie in a theater in a year and a half, except perhaps when I was an infant. Um, I went with uh, one of my friends, Eric, uh, to Spiral from the Book of Saw. Uh, uh. Technically the ninth Saw movie. We covered Saw 1 through 7 years and years ago that it will eventually be added us. to the archive. It, uh, I quite liked it. It almost broke you, Thrasher. I know you really hated those, right? Well, it's it's not it's it's not that I hated them. It's that my patience with the series ran thin about movie four, and I never <laughs> yep. and I never really it never earned my patience back. They, they do stretch things out quite a bit, and and this one, it's it's meant to be a spinoff series. I joke and say it's Saw Nine, but um, I also think you know we're just past the first year of COVID nineteen. And theaters are starting to open slowly, but it also makes me think, what do box office grosses mean anymore? Like, will this get a sequel? Is is the bar to clear to get a sequel lower than before? Because it's been out for about two weeks. It's made, um, I think, under $20 million in the U.S., which isn't good, but because um, the budget was about $20 million. But on the other hand, what's considered a success? Like, I have no idea. Like, maybe that'll be enough for them to squeak out another one. But this was uh, Chris Rock is uh, friends with the friends of people over at the uh, Twisted Pictures, and he pitched them at a... He was at someone's wedding or something and, and pitched the head dude that he had an idea for a Saw movie with perhaps a bit more comedy and would kind of focus more on the police angle, and uh, they went with it, and, you know, it has Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson, and Chris Rock has a story by credit, although it feels like he maybe should have had more credit for this script based on some of his, he has a lot of these sort of like rants he goes on that feel very Chris Rockish to me. And, um, Oh, what was that? Was it good? Eh. You know, there's worse some movies. There's better some movies. I'd put it right in the middle. Um, Chris Rock, you know, he does push himself with the acting to do more dramatic things. And I don't think it helps that the director, Darren Lynn Boozman, who also directed Saw 2, 3, and 4, as well as things like uh, Repo, the genetic opera, um, he has this kind of manic camera style where, like, and there's a scene that's, like, unintentionally funny where something traumatic happens and Chris Rock, as the detective Zeke, is in his car screaming and, like, the camera's shaking and does all these jump cut things. That sounds annoying. I already don't like this movie. Okay. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, and I, 
people say the first movie saw was really influenced by seven, but I don't see that as much really, but this one really feels more like seven. Um, there's some good jokes about Pilates and Forrest Gump in here. I'm not making that up. Uh, it, it, it's okay. If you're a fan of the series, you might as well watch this one for my money. I liked it more than the eighth film in the series jigsaw, which tried to make things even more convoluted, uh, somehow because it, it's really it leans on soap opera theatrics with, maybe we'll you know do a mini a mini series where we do jigsaw and this new saw yeah i think i think you're right when this stuff comes out on video that's not a bad idea because i mean god some of the sequels it's like this little wiggly shadow you see in the corner is actually this other character who hasn't been introduced who's who's putting this who set up this trap so he's been there all along don't you see i mean there's a lot of that shit in the sequels, and this, you know, they do do a clean. They, they reference the original Jigsaw, who who uh, died in the third film, but they always kept him in flashbacks in the other ones. In this one, you just see his picture. Uh, so they do try to do a clean break. I think it's an admirable attempt. If they do a second one, I think they could uh, get better footing. Um, it was about what I expected it would be. So they're trying to do a David Gordon Green thing again. The yes, yes, did. yes. You're I'm right. trying to do this now, and you know, saw you're too young. You're, you you've been around for like not even twenty something years now. You can't do you can't David Gordon Green your own franchise. Uh, there's got to be a mandate. At least like it's almost twenty years. Yeah. Really. Yes. You're yeah. right. It's you know for a while they did the the thing. Uh, if it's Halloween, it must be time for Saw. But it, uh, but you get diminishing returns at a certain point. I'm, uh, yeah. So it's okay. I'm, I guess I'm glad I saw it. It felt weird going in a movie theater again. I'll tell you that much. And and I'd be surprised if there was more than ten people in the theater. Um. So yeah, there you go. Spiral from the book of Saw. You know, I help. I hope yeah. this experience kind of recalibrates studios thinking. I would love it if this would just lead to a resurgence of mid-budget movies. Right. No, I mean the budget in this for 20 million, although expensive for a soft film, is, you know, pretty Yeah, you're right. Mid-budget has been dropping off for a while, you know, in the 90s you would get things like a Tom Clancy movie or a John Grisham, and yeah. now it seems like the mid-budget has moved to television with the um you know, the HBO Showtime, Apple Plus, whatever, well, what have you, uh, series. E- even something like, I don't think it's a great show, but there's a, I believe it's on CBS, it's called Clarice. It's like a, a, a show that takes place after Silence of the Lambs, but because of complicated legal rights, they don't have the rights to the Hannibal Lecter character, which is odd. Oh, um, yeah. So they call him like Phineas Lecter? They just can't even reference him, period. Like, they reference everything else from that first movie and uh, even kind of do, you know, flashbacks, so to speak. And the the main actress, you know, does do the Jodie Foster kind of Southern accent thing well. But it's it's a weird thing to leave out when uh, Hannibal Lecter, for many, is the big uh, attracting thing of that series. But then we have the Hannibal series that I thought was pretty good and perverse from... uh, uh, a while ago at this point so yeah we lucked out and as far as television is concerned we lucked out big time with hannibal don't don't push it no right yeah i agree that that's that's fair um so yeah alex what have you been watching the hell have i been watching um i recently got the anias varda box set the criterion uh box set of anias varda movies it's nearly all of her movies 
But instead of finishing that off, now I finish that off. I watched Mike Nichols' The Day of the Dolphin. I saw this as a child. I remember very little about it, except that for the poster is very powerful. It's got a great poster and the greatest tagline of all time. Unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States of America. I mean, there you go. That's it. There could be an Abel Ferreira retrospective. And if I saw this poster, I'd be like, I'm going to this fucking thing. Yep. Um, unfortunately, that's probably the best part of the movie. No, it's it, this is such a strange film to me. I mean, you've got uh, Buck Mike Nichols of all people. Mike Nichols of all people, right? I mean, and also this was going to be Roman Polanski's next movie. Hmm. Like the Day of the Dolphin on the Street was like a Roman Polanski movie. Like it was a done deal, and then some assholes had to go be assholes and murder his wife. Um. Uh. Yeah. So then it's just the credentials are, are so weird in this film, and um. I, I tried watching it a few years ago, and it's always been kind of a rock in my shoe. So uh, we finally watched it the other night, and it's a real slow burner. It's like Michael Crichton meets Jean Le Carre. You know, like you have like a slow burning yeah. thriller with like wacky animals and talking dolphins and shit. And like this should be a stupid movie. <clears throat> it really should be, but it's actually kind of good. I mean, it's not as bad as everyone out makes as as it's made out to be it's a very maligned film um but george c scott brings uh, does a lot of the heavy lifting um i'll say that much it's and, a dolphin it's a goddamn dolphin um it's like i i think this is like we'll never see gene hackman play sheriff brody but i feel like this is kind of close yeah having like a grizzly 70s hollywood actor yell at a fish or sorry bamble <laughs> But um, weird movie, weird experience. I'm glad I have it. I'm glad I watched it. Um, hell, I might even watch it again someday. Uh, strange, strange thing. Strange movie, The Day of the Dolphin. Um, I'll you... recommend it because I think people should just watch it because it's just, I don't know. What else? Well, there's no other movie like The Day of the Dolphin. I'll say that much. No, and it's a good kind of um, period piece as far as what you had a lot of this kind of nuclear war uh, anxiety at the time and also with kind of the downer endings and things of the 70s movies it it, it does fit into that um milieu kind of i probably mispronounced that because i've never taken a french class but mm-hmm. yeah it's um it, it has something to it and it has to have had a huge influence on sequest oh yeah totally i think this is a movie that like writers like mm, sure <laughs> You know, this is probably big in like the, the sci-fi writers club and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, I think there's this there's a self-seriousness to it that works for and against it because it works for it in that you it kind of plays along in that like vein of like it's a milieu of like 70s downer thrillers of like Parallax View or, um, you know, all the president's men, stuff like that. But the first half of the movie, like nothing happens. There's really not a whole lot going on. It's just a lot of people talking, and there's a cer- at certain points I'm just kind of thinking I'm like Mike Nichols, did you just want to make a documentary about dolphins? Because there's a lot of like beautiful slow motion shots of dolphins swimming and splashing and doing dolphin shit, and yeah, it's a it's a weird movie, man. But um, an an interesting watch, I'll say that. Right. You mentioned the documentary stuff. I'm reminded of something I read about in a, a recent making of book about 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
where it was stated that they filmed all this material uh, that Arthur Arthur C. Clarke wrote about um, space and what astronauts are really studying and all these things that were they were intended to include in the film kind of in between its kind of uh, um, unique narrative. And then Kubrick just decided we don't need any of this, just took it all out. <laughs> and it's a more interesting movie, I think, because of that. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, definitely read up about the development history and the script history of 2001, because it really is fascinating to see the film as originally written versus what we got. Yeah, because it was developed as a movie first before a novel, and then, of course, Clark did all his other novels. And, yeah, I mean, a lot of... Yeah, Kubrick had some weird ideas, man, but there was nobody like Kubrick. That's for sure. Well, uh, not a very warmly embraced film when it came out. Yeah. Uh, you know, like all Kubrick's movies don't do phenomenal business. They, they're they influential. They do phenomenal business. But then those movies become like the penultimate of that genre, you know? Like, you no know, one really liked The Shining when they came out. They thought it was ponderous and kind of boring and pretentious. Uh, same thing with uh, 2001. And then, you know, what do you get? They're like the flagship sci-fi, the flagship horror films of the generation. It's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, the unmade Kubrick film, I wish he really would have done. Um, instead, he ended up, you know, doing Barry Lyndon out of kind of the scraps, more or less, was Napoleon, and it would have starred Jack Nicholson as Napoleon. I mean, Jack Nicholson is a tall guy. I'm not sure how they would have done that part, but yeah. I, I think that really could have been something. Um, well, Napoleon's shortness has been exaggerated. Sure. I think um, people were just shorter then. So, like, he was just like yes. a below average, I guess. Right. I, I'd like to think in an alternate universe, he had a joke in Get Shorty where uh, Danny DeVito's character starred in a version of Napoleon. <laughs> and I think had Napoleon done a Kubrick or had a DeVito played Napoleon in a Kubrick film, I would have paid money for that. We're going to go to Waterloo. <laughs> but first, let's get high. No, Thrasher. Uh, All what right. Have you been watching? So I watched a very disturbing film from 1973. It's directed by Ted Post, uh, who also directed uh, Beneath the Planet of the, Planet Apes. Of the Apes. So the second there's, one. there's your connection to the series. All right. So uh, this I, I watched The Baby. Have either of you ever heard of this movie? I, it's sitting on my shelf right now. We haven't watched it yet, but God damn it, I want to see it. You OK, watch, watch it. This is one of the most disturbing films I have ever seen. Yeah. Uh, if, if anyone is compelled to check it out, I think you definitely should check it out. But fair warning, you will see some disturbing shit in this movie. Uh, there is there is stuff in this movie that will disturb you. There is stuff in this movie that will offend you. Uh, uh, so if you have certain sensitivities, you may just not want to see this movie at all. But it is, and and it's one of those movies where it's, it's very, very anchored in the 70s. Uh, everyone, like, looks very 70s. They don't, like, glam anybody up, really. Um, uh, except in a cocktail party scene where they do glam everybody up, but in the worst 1970s kind of way. But it has that 70s handheld dinginess that makes you think that the next time the, the movie cuts, you're going to see the most freaky shit you've ever seen. Interesting. So I'm it builds a lot of tension. Yeah. But but the, the premise... Um, uh, 
uh, Anjane Comer plays uh, Anne Gentry. She's a social worker, and she's assigned a new case. There's this family, the Wadsworths, who they have they have a, a baby with special needs, and they get like uh, a stipend to, uh, from from the city government to help pay for it. Uh, and so she is assigned as the caseworker. And so the Wadsworths, it's Miss Wadsworth, and it's her two sisters, Jermaine and Alba. And then you meet the baby, and the baby is a 21-year-old man who doesn't have a name. He's just named Baby, and he acts like a baby. And the movie keeps you, for a long time, keeps you guessing about why this is. Sounds very hmm. interesting. I need to see this. Oh, and it's just and it's just so disturbing. Part of it because as the movie goes on, you find out that like whatever's going on, the whole neighborhood seems to be complicit with it. And and it just and from from there, from that from there, it goes off in a thousand disturbing directions. And then and it has one of those climaxes. It is not necessarily a twist ending, and it's not necessarily an ending you won't see coming. But if you do guess what the ending is. Like, like my, my whole feeling is I saw the ending coming, but the whole time, like, no, they're not going to do this. No, mm. they wouldn't do this. No, no, no filmmaker would do this. And then they did it. Mm. So it sounds like a perfect first date movie. <laughs> it's just interesting because um, Ted Post not only did uh, the Beneath the Planet Apes, but he also did the second uh, Dirty Harry movie, Magnum Force, which is pretty cool with a script by Michael Cimino, of all people, and John Milius. John Milius, yeah. And, I mean, it's a the thing with Magnum Force that, I mean, we should do Dirty Harry on the show. We have that stuff yeah. on the server. But uh, Magnum Force, it's like, you know, Dirty Harry is kind of like a, a rogue cop, but kind of like everyone. It, it's like an anti-cop movie, weirdly, at a time when you weren't seeing a lot of that. On the same side, you know, uh, both Clint Eastwood and the Dirty Harry character himself and John Milius, for that matter, are pretty conservative. And so how do you do kind of like a crooked cop movie that's made by a, a, a bunch of conservatives? Like, it's an interesting um, kind of and, spin yeah. on that. This is like the this is the movie that really starts to fetishize guns. Like this is you yes. get like like horny shots of like a forty five Magnum and like a narration of like this is the most deadliest handgun in the world. It's so sexy. Ooh. I mean, they don't literally say the sexy part, but yeah, like it's a uh, yeah. They definitely fetishize guns in this all like much more than the first one. And it's kind of a mystery too, which is nice. I mean, the first one it's more of like a. A takeoff on the Zodiac Killer. Scorpio. Yep. Hey, here's a crossover for you. Scorpio versus Serpico. Hoo-ha! Where's mm. this? Yo, who's he think he is? Gotta take my name. I just rewatched, I've mentioned this in the show a few times, but I just rewatched the Mad TV sketch of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro ordering ice cream from Baskin Robbins. <laughs> it's, it's so great with Will Sasso and uh, who's the other guy? Um, Frank Caliendo? Yeah, Caliendo is the other one. And, like, they look nothing like him, but the voices are almost too good, and it's just an excuse. Like, you could tell they wrote this sketch backwards. Like, <laughs> where they're like, oh, there's such, like, stupid flavors at Baskin-Robbins. What did it sound like if Al Pacino said, I would really like a, a rum raisin. Sounds good. Oh. I, rum raisin was exactly what I was about to do. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's weird. Like, Mad TV, not a good show. 
but the launching pad for some amazing careers. And every episode has one brilliant sketch. Yeah. Uh, it is worth yeah. checking. The, I love the Lillian Burner sketches. Yes, and I mean Bobby Lee is is, is really overlooked, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I mean not. I mean, oh Alex Bornstein. I mean, you know who's doing. You know, won the um, Golden Globes and stuff for her part in that Amazon show, whose name I can't remember. Maisel, marvelous Miss Maisel. Um, Hi. But I mean, she's also the the mom on Family Guy and all this stuff. So I mean, but that yeah, so many people got their big starts in Mad TV. That it's a shame the show never lived up to the magazine. But how could you? Yeah, Mad Magazine. I I used to read them all the time when I was a kid. I I still pick up at least like one issue a year. I really do love their their t- the twenty stupidest things of the year year in review that they do every well, year. And, and they've stopped uh, publishing new issues of the magazine fairly recently. What they've published now is just kind of compilations, which is too bad. But it that's the way of print media. Yeah, well. Although I say the the the, re, the reprints and collections of classic material are also really really worth uh, picking up. It's a great three volume set. It's like called like the original idiots collection or something like that. It's like all, it's all like the best like Wallywood Bill Elder uh, stuff uh, from the early from the early years of Mad Magazine reprinted in full color. They're very funny. Yeah, one of my favorite artists on Mad Magazine died recently in his nineties. Uh, Mort Drucker. Oh no! I didn't know more died. Yeah, um, let me look that up just to confirm it. But I'm pretty sure I, I read that recently. But he he's on an e- uh, excellent episode of um, yeah he did April 9th, twenty twenty. Man, that was recent. Yeah, but he's oh. on a really good episode of the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast with uh, some other mad artist on there. Oh, I think yeah. I've I think I've I've listened to that one. It was good. And, and they talk about. Uh, family members being Holocaust survivors and all this stuff. But I mean, Mort Drucker, he did, I would say like, he did like the drawings in the back where you fold up the drawings and they match up. But he also did the, a lot of the movie parodies and TV parodies. So he had this style of caricature that was just dead on. Um, A lot of good, you know, just really fine detail on everything. Actually, like he, he did the art for their, for a lot of their, uh, Star Wars parodies. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And they're, they just look, they look gorgeous. And he did the Superman movie. I'm I'm looking at the openings page of his Superman parody. And there's just this perfect Brando caricature where he's doing these gestures that are so much bigger and grander than any gesture Marlon Brando ever did. Yeah. Son of a bitch. Al Jaffe is still alive at a hundred years old. Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. I mean, yeah, no, no, Mad Magazine was everything to me. And it's, uh, yeah. Um, Sergio Orgones, I also had a soft spot for. Oh, he's great. And he is still alive, is he? This oh, is yeah, so he's morbid. Still yeah. 83, one of the younger ones. Okay. Um, <sighs> on that note, and of course, he did the Gru uh, comics. Um, Those are fun. Yep, so next week, apropos of nothing. Oh, that's a good sketch. That's all. More Drucker? 
It's, to... it's, it's more Drucker. Yeah. It's just a mix of like, you can tell when it was made in the mid 90s because of Will Smith from Wild Wild West on Wild it. It's Wild got West Steve and... Martin, Jerry oh. Seinfeld, Lucille Ball, Bill uh, Free Scandal, Bill Cosby, Chris Rock is on there. That's another Groucho reason I picked Marx? it. Yeah, Groucho, Bob Hope. Same. Looks like Richard Pryor. Yeah, that is Pryor. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good. Steve Martin, uh, Letterman, Lucy Ellen, who is stopping her show. Uh, um, I'm not going to get into that yet. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. On so next week on Sequel Cast Two, we'll be looking at Critters Two. I want to say the new batch, but that's not the name. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's uh, what is it? It's Critters Two: The Main Course. The Main Course, n- not a great title, it's but all rolling. It should be Second Helping. Second Helping is better. Yeah. The Critters get stuffed. Uh, hey, there we go. Yeah. So um, we'll be talking about that next week. Uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can also listen to the show on Stitcher. Check it out, stitcher.com. Um, you can follow pressure. me on Twitter uh, at Internet Mayor. Also, our theme song is written and performed by Mark with the C. Check out his stuff at markwiththec.com. You can follow me on Twitter at crabnebula1914. I wish I could change it, but it's too goddamn late. And also, I've always wanted to say this, buy my book. Um, I've, uh, been published alongside, um, a litany of great writers for the Battleship Pretension book, the 100 best, uh, the best 101 films of the decade. You can buy it at battleshippretension.com for a few bucks, $14.99, worth every penny. Check it out, and, uh, yeah, buy my book. Very good. So, for sequel cast, uh, yep, for sequel cast two, uh, this is Matt. This is Alex. And this is Thrasher. No, Thrasher had to just pop off for a second and you wrap the show up. Um, saying, uh, can't think of a good. We'll get you. What's that? Kill all crites. Oh my god, is that a critter over there? It was a little bird with a knife. Hello. Hello. Oh, look, it's a critter. Or is it a crot? I get messed up. Oh, he's munching. I, I, I got blisters on my fingers and he's munching them off. It's the power.